Radio MD. RadioMD.com. Hear it from the doctor with expert guests from the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's Healthy Children. Now, our favorite mom, Melanie Cole, MS. Welcome to Healthy Children, where all of our expert guests are provided by the American Academy of Pediatrics in conjunction with their consumer website, HealthyChildren.org. I'm Melanie Cole, and if you are a parent like I was when my kids were little, you know that it can be incredibly frustrating and even scary at times when your kids are constipated. It's really common, and it's something that so many parents go through, but we're going to learn about it today and get all the information that you need so that you have informed decisions and you know what's really going on with your children. Joining me today is... Dr. Patrick Reeves. He's an officer in the United States Army Medical Corps with a clinical specialization in pediatric gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition. He's an assistant professor of pediatrics adjunct to the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. Dr. Reeves, it's a pleasure to have you join us. As I said in my intro, what a prevalent problem. You see a lot of this, yes? We do. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, Actually, functional constipation of the types of constipation and defecation disorders we can discuss today makes up about 33% of all visits to all pediatric gastroenterologists in North America. Wow. It's really common. Now, was I right? Is it more common in boys than girls? So actually, that's a great question. There was a great systematic review that got published uh, almost 10 years ago by some of the big wigs in this research topic. And if you're speaking internationally, It actually appears to be more prevalent in girls as opposed to boys. But the interesting thing we can get down into the weeds here shortly is that it does appear that boys will have more likely significant symptoms, including fecal incontinence. And that's going to be more common in the males than girls, especially as they get older. So why don't you then define for us, Dr. Reeves, constipation? What does that really mean? And and obviously we're talking about a myriad of disorders when we're talking about anything having to do with our kids pooping, but tell us what how you define that. Absolutely. So there are two main flavors of constipation. The rarer type is what we call organic constipation. And that's going to be related to different diseases and disorders, some of them congenital that a child is born with, something where the nerves may not have formed properly, things like spina bifida, for instance, or other conditions that are acquired that lead to a disruption in the normal signaling pathway of the gut, things like celiac disease. Those can lead to constipation of an organic type. But far and away, the most common cause of constipation is what we call functional constipation. And you can sort of think of this more like a behavioral type of constipation. It's present in somewhere between 12 to 14% of all children around the globe. And its clinical definition is based in something we call the Rome criteria. So the Rome Foundation is a wonderful research group that has been around for many decades. And their sole purpose is to help classify and define GI disorders like functional constipation. And so they had their fourth iteration a few years ago that updated the definition of functional constipation. And so here it is. It is one month of symptoms for either toilet-trained or non-toilet-trained children. There is a frequency to this. So for one month, you have two or fewer poops in the toilet per week, 
or at least one episode of fecal incontinence per week. Some of the other factors that could be at play, again, we need at least two, is a history of retentive posturing. We call that withholding, history of painful or hard bowel movements, presence of a large fecal abdominal mass, so we can feel it on the belly or do a digital rectal exam and feel it that way, or a history of large diameter stools that can obstruct the toilet. I like to call this dad poops. Big boys are the most common culprit of this where their poops are so large that they can't be flushed down the toilet. So those are the six criteria. You need two out of the six and one month of these symptoms to outline functional constipation. Wow, thank you so much for actually defining that for us. Now, for parents that deal with this, and it can be frustrating, it can be scary at times, you know, we're not sure why. And full disclosure here, my son had this so badly and he would walk around at two years old going uh, uh, and we couldn't tell if he was holding it in or trying to push it out how dangerous can this be because sometimes my kid didn't go for like five or six days dr reeves yes ma'am and certainly that frequency of pooping the frequency of defecation can be really concerning to parents and the truth is, is that it varies per child. And that's not a very fun answer for parents. But the reality is, I don't care quite as much as a pediatric gastroenterologist about how frequently a child is going. I care more about what the poop looks like when it comes out, the character of poop. And really, the term I use in clinic is the hardness. The longer that poop sits in the colon and rectum, the colon and rectum will steal more and more water from that poop. So it may get there and be a peanut butter consistency. That's the perfect kind to poop out. But as poop gets withheld, because that's a common behavior for kids, more and more water gets taken off of it. And it turns then into a smooth sausage, then to a rocky sausage, and then to pebbles, sort of like rat pellet poops. Other kids have told me it looks like they're pooping out little cereal, you know, like little pieces of cereal. So the harder the poop is, is really going to be the most helpful factor in determining whether a child is constipated. Okay, so first of all, as you said, this could be a little bit behavioral. What do you mean by that? Is there a hesitancy or a fear in, in the child? Is it diet related? Because Again, I'm an exercise physiologist and I was feeding my kid tofu and fiber. And before we started with the Marillax, and you and I will get into that, but I mean, I was doing stir fries and just such healthy, fibrous, good, healthy food, and it still didn't work. Oh, and I, I think I applaud you for all the efforts that you were employing to try and help your child. I think it's a combination of all of these things. We know that there's going to be altered gut physiology for kiddos who are taking in poor forms of nutrition. You know, that goes to your processed foods and eating way too many hamburgers and potato chips and not getting in their daily requirements of natural fibers from vegetables, natural sugars from foods. So having vegetables and fruits on board is very, very important. But there's also psychological stressors that go into that. And one of the very common things that we hear about is, especially during toilet training, is children are trying to learn how to defecate in a specific location, 
the toilet for the very first time and they're nervous about that. Well, that nervousness can initiate a vicious cycle where they're afraid to poop. They volitionally withhold in that poop and it gets harder. And finally, when they are forced to poop it out, those very hard poops can rub up against the skin of the rectum and anus and actually call, uh, cause tearing. We call those anal fissures. And that can be exceedingly painful after subsequent defecation and those poops roll over those open wounds. And that sort of a cycle can almost lead to a PTSD-like syndrome where these children continue to withhold because they're afraid they're going to hurt themselves when they poop. But unfortunately, their withholding just makes it worse. And they continue to have hard poops that tear them up and make them feel terrible. I swear what you just described is exactly what happened with my son. So we call our pediatricians. We love our pediatricians and the AAP gold standard, right? They're, you guys are the ones helping us to raise our children, and we call our peds doc. And what is the first kind of thing? Do we look to behavioral lifestyles? Do we go right to Marillax or fiber supplements? What's the first thing you would try with parents that are frustrated? So first of all, I think that frustration is like the most common vital sign that I get to elicit in Pete's GI clinic when we're talking about constipation. Nobody's going to show up happy about this problem. And so acknowledging that upfront from a provider perspective, I think is the most important thing because we're trying to treat this at a full biopsychosocial model. There's a lot of factors at play. So acknowledging that stress is primary and first and foremost among them. Now, the thing that we do, especially in gastroenterology clinic, is we assess these children who have had chronic constipation. And lifestyle modifications are frequently not going to be enough to treat their constipation. So when someone meets that clinical definition of functional constipation, a lot of the time, fiber won't be enough. Uh, you have lots of providers who suggest a additional hydration, especially in the summer months, thinking that if you hydrate the child, hard poops could be hydrated and thus defecation improve. As wonderful as those things, especially adding on a nutritious, naturally high in fiber diet, those three things don't really bear out in the evidence to treat functional constipation. And so when we get to the point of being evaluated in the clinic, be that in general pediatrics, Again, this is going to be somewhere between 1% and 5% of all the things they see or pediatric gastroenterology. This is one out of every three patients that we see in GI clinic. It's probably going to be time to consider some pharmacotherapy options. So then what does that look like? And, and really, when does it come to where we see a pediatric gastroenterologist as a specialist instead of just our pediatrician in the medical home? Absolutely. So I think that when you meet the Rome 4 criteria for functional constipation, it's a diagnostic criteria that really only requires history taking and physical examination. There's no other x-rays or anything like that required. If you meet that definition, you warrant medicines, you warrant pharmacotherapy. And this is something that general pediatricians can certainly manage, but pediatric gastroenterologists are often called when children are recalcitrant to therapy when they don't improve with the first or second attempt. And there's lots of different medication classes that we can try, 
But before we get into that, I think it's important to sort of set the stage on how pediatric gastroenterologists typically treat constipation. So for one, we in gastroenterology clinic are typically seeing children who've been constipated for many months, maybe even years. And sometimes that can lead to what we call a very large fecal burden, where from the very bottom of the rectum all the way up, they have got impaction of stool. And a lot of times that stool, the poop, is accumulated to such a high volume, it even leads to expansion, dilation of their colonic walls. And when that happens, you again disrupt the normal physiology of the gut, and it can be very difficult for children to recognize that normal sensation for needing to poop, even when their body is urging them to. When you have that cascading problem of altered physiology and this fecal impaction of the entire colon, before you can start maintenance therapy, you've got to do a clean out or a flush. There's different terms for it, but it's very similar to what our patients who are age 45 and above, who should be getting their screening colonoscopies, they get a clean out before that colonoscopy. We do very similar things for medical indication of disimpacting a child with chronic functional constipation. And it's after that disimpaction that we go into the phase of maintenance therapy. So you got to clean out their colons like those of us that have colonoscopies every few years. You got to get it all cleaned out to start that maintenance therapy. Now, can kids, because I told you off the air, I had to call my doctor. I thought it was an emergency. Something popped out of his little tush. And she said, oh, it's, it's just his rectum. Use a little Vaseline, push it right back in. It's because he was pushing so hard. Do kids get hemorrhoids or is there a little prolapse? What happens when parents see that? Because I, I, I have talked to some parents, a lot of them that have seen that. Right. That's an excellent question. So what you're describing when the tissue of the uh, rectum and the structures higher in the colon, like the sigmoid, when those start to protrude out of the anus, we call that rectal prolapse. That's actually something that we see uh, fairly commonly in gastroenterology clinic. And it's just another sign that constipation in these children has been very, very chronic. Now it's important to also recognize there are other conditions that can cause rectal prolapse. One of those associated with rectal prolapse is cystic fibrosis. Another is celiac disease. And I bring that up because it's important to know that a pediatrician who evaluates a child for functional constipation and hears about rectal prolapse when they take that history, we need to ask appropriate questions for that child and the child's family history to rule out some of these diagnoses. As the child had chronic cough, chronic pneumonias, failure to thrive, things like that are very important to know about so that you can eliminate cystic fibrosis. There's been excellent evidence to show especially in the last 20 years, that functional constipation is overwhelmingly the most common cause of rectal prolapse, much more common than it is cystic fibrosis leading to rectal prolapse, celiac disease leading to rectal prolapse, or other varieties like that. Now, when you ask about hemorrhoids, it, there, there are children who can certainly develop hemorrhoids, but because of the musculature that we have in the pelvis and normal development in children, hemorrhoids are actually a all unto common, very rare finding that we see in gastroenterology clinic. 
I would say that rectal prolapse is much more common of a tissue change that I can appreciate in clinic as opposed to hemorrhoids. And the treatment remains the same. Those children absolutely warrant a clean out followed by maintenance therapy for at least two months, but probably longer with especially one month where they show zero symptoms whatsoever before being weaned off of their medicines. Wow, you are so informative, Dr. Reeves. So what about some of the things that parents can do? I gave my kids bugs and oil. That's what we called it, probiotics and fish oil, you know, for little kids. And so I would go, time for your bugs and oil, because I thought that would help, you know, run the things and and get that good gut bacteria going. Do those help? Is that a myth? Tell us about some of those types of things. Well, so these are topics near and dear to my heart because my uh, passion and research is trying to develop, you know, self-management skills for parents to manage kids with chronic diseases at home. But the truth behind the matter is that fish oil is an amazing supplement that kids can get. And if you're not getting it naturally through your diet, it's great to supplement it. And probiotics too, there's definitely some evidence in adults that suggests that probiotics could be helpful. The evidence is not so strong in children. And actually, when we just published the update on the Healthy Children website article for constipation, we don't necessarily recommend probiotics. Now, there's a caveat to that, just like with other things in medicine. Are the probiotics going to cure constipation? Probably not. Could they help the child with functional constipation who's also getting other medicines, potentially. And will the probiotics harm the child? Probably not. So what I tell my parents in clinic is I cannot get insurance to cover this probiotic, but if you see that it's helping your child, and if I can look at the bottle and say, okay, at least what the bottle says are appropriate strains for this child to be exposed to, then try it out but we may not be getting actual clinical benefit from those probiotic strains or the vitamin supplementation. Well, I certainly appreciate you telling us that. And before we wrap up, gosh, what a great topic, but who would have thought you can talk for so long about kids' poop? But, you know, it really is such an interesting topic. And I think back in my days, Dr. Reeves, when I was a little kid, my our parents didn't know anything about us pooping. They didn't even pay any attention to any of that stuff, right? But now we're also fixated on every little thing our child does is it okay to leave them sitting on the toilet reading a book? Or are we supposed to have them try and get back off? And if it didn't work, didn't work that time, we'll try again in a little while, go run around the block a few times. Is there anything like that we should be doing? Should we not let them sit? Do we let them? What do we do? So I think that's going to be an individual child sort of decision. So that's a family decision. There are some children who will be on the toilet for 30, 45 minutes. And that's probably not the healthiest option. Um, I will say that that is much more common in our adolescents who can bring their smartphone into the bathroom and they doze (laughs) off when they're watching their latest TikTok video. And those are habits that when I talk to teenagers, I say, you know, you're, you're very healthy right now, but when you turn 60 or 70 and this is the habit you've done for your entire life, that's how hemorrhoids start to be grown. Um, oh, boy, that, preaching to the choir here, Doc. <laughs> wow. <yeah. laughs> but beyond that, really the only other three things that I recommend around toileting is, one, 
We know because of the evidence uh, that my group has done is that children who are age uh, four years and less, and so unlikely to be in regular school, especially under the age of two, so probably not fully toilet trained, the safest option for them to have for toileting is to get a ground-based toilet that is at their appropriate height so that they do not have to climb up onto the adult porcelain toilet. There's actually a high risk of traumatic brain injury from kids falling off of those adult-sized toilets and bonking their heads either on the ground or the furniture. The second thing I would recommend is something that I always offer to my families is they can use a potty stool or a defecation posture modification device, something uh, that we studied from the company Squatty Potty is using those I was going to say, is it the Squatty Potty you're talking about? Yeah. Awesome. So, so my group was the first one to study a large cohort in children and demonstrate that the use of this pediatric potty stool was safe. And the concept behind that is by lifting the hips, you can relax the puborectal sling and allow for a straighter, easier uh, outlet for the poop. And so I always recommend that to families. Now, it's much more efficacious in older children. Certainly, that potty stool should be used for toilet-trained children because that's the only evidence that we've been able to look at so far. Now, I offered three things, and I think the third is probably the most important. If a child is uh, performing toilet training and they become constipated, children should continue their toilet training and continue on their medicines uninterrupted so that we can manage their constipation and support them through that toilet training. It is only after becoming continent, successfully having been toilet trained, and then at least a month where they have been asymptomatic from constipation, that we should take them off of those therapies. So before we wrap up, Dr. Reeves, I'd like your best advice for parents listening that are going through this right now or those of us that remember those days. My goodness, it was scary a little bit. It was frustrating. You know, we saw specialists and went around and there was tests. And, you know, now you you know so much more about this particular situation. What would you like parents to know about constipation in their children, how common this is, and what you'd like them to do when they start to notice this? Well, so I think it's a few things. One, it's always important, no matter the age of the child, to try and get a sense of how hard are those poops. And if your child's complaining of abdominal pain and they have very hard poops, that's a great reason to take them to their pediatrician or their provider. There has been some sensationalized news in the media over the last couple of years about the use of these different medicines, whether it's Miralax or some of our stimulant laxatives like Sinecot, Bisicodal, and other varieties. The take-home message is that we have enormous, very large studies that follow children for many, many years showing that Miralax is safe. Miralax is safe in the short and long term. It does not contain ethylene glycol. It's not increasing the risk of autism. And it's absolutely the number one medication to use for clean-out and maintenance therapy with children. If a child has significant withholding in gastroenterology clinic, we like to use stimulant laxatives because we know it's a good surrogate for that feeling, that sensation that children might have lost urging themselves to defecate. Those also 
are not associated with developing dependence, and they are very helpful in resolving the symptoms of constipation and so would be safe. I think those are the biggest takeaways I would urge families to consider because I certainly understand all of the media attention that constipation has received in the last few years, but I can promise you the medications being offered by pediatricians and gastroenterologists alike are going to be safe both in the short and long term for their child. Well, if that isn't the best poop discussion I have ever had in all my years in this business, I don't know what is. Parents, share this show with your friends and family because I'm sure you know somebody who is going through this that has little kids. And this was so informative. Dr. Reeves, what a great guest you are. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your incredible expertise for parents. And parents, you can listen to these shows on Spotify and iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcast everywhere podcasts are played. But of course, we would like you to listen at RadioMD.com. So for the American Academy of Pediatrics, HealthyChildren.org, their consumer website, and RadioMD, I am Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening and stay well.